Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry of King David. This morning we find ourselves at the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 31, this is the account of Saul's death, the very first king of Israel. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he's badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword. And thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. He may be seated. Well, it's not getting as much news coverage now, but the war in the Ukraine continues to linger on, and sadly and tragically, it may go on for a lot longer. In addition to all of the hardship and the suffering that's been caused to the Ukrainian people, it's been an unmitigated disaster for Vladimir Putin and the Russian military. And that is the case because of at least at least three serious miscalculations on Putin's part. First, Putin seriously miscalculated the strength of the Ukrainian military and the resilience of her people. He had no idea what he was getting himself into. His second great miscalculation was overestimating the strength of the Russian army, which wasn't nearly as strong as he thought it was. And last but not least, he grossly miscalculated the response of the West. The Western NATO alliance had been fracturing for years, but his invasion of the Ukraine, what did it do to the West and to NATO? It unified the West in ways that has not been the case for many years. His miscalculation in invading Ukraine may turn out to be the biggest blunder of the 21st century. Well, this morning we are going to see another very significant and costly miscalculation. A miscalculation that will actually highlight the character of David and the significance of God's anointed. With that in mind, let's look at our text. Let's go to verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. If you remember back to last week, the Philistines lured 
Saul and the Israelites into a battle they could not win. A battle where the Philistines had a massive advantage. Do you remember why? Without getting into all of the history, the Philistines lured the Israelites into fighting a war in the Valley of Jezreel, which has a massive flat valley, okay, floor, which is perfect for what kind of weapon? Chariots, of which the Philistines had many. The Israelites didn't. And so as soon as the Philistines had achieved that advantage, Israel had no chance. Look at verse 2. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. I don't have a map this week. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And now for the original reader, and really for readers ever since that time, this comes as a massive blow. Why is that the case? What's startling about this text? It's really not the death of Saul in some senses. Who is it the death of? Jonathan, David's beloved friend. It's not an overstatement to say that David would not be alive had not he had the loyal friendship of Jonathan. Jonathan was as loyal a friend to David as any person has ever had. And so this is tragic to read. Christian friendship is a wonderful thing. In fact, we're not going to... Well, actually, I'll just read it. It's not in your text. But in 2 Samuel 1, David sings to the Lord. David says, and this is interesting, in 2 Samuel 1, 26, David says, How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of of women. And so don't take that the wrong way. What is David saying about his friendship to Jonathan? That, that, that there's something about Christian friendship sometimes between someone of the same sex in a completely legitimate and appropriate way. There's a kind of friendship between a man and a man and a woman and a woman that even a husband and wife don't enjoy. That doesn't in any way um, underplay the relationship and friendship between a husband and a wife, but it says there is something to Christian friendships of people of the same sex that are incredibly valuable. The Proverbs say, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18.24 reads, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but what? There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Christian friendship is an incredibly valuable thing. Christian friendship is something that should be sought after and cultivated. Everyone should aspire to have a friendship like David and Jonathan. You know, everybody should aspire to have a friend of the same sex, you know, that you do life with, that you spend time together, that you invest in, someone that invests in you. That should be an intentional part of our life to seek out 
someone like that. David was absolutely devastated when Jonathan died, which was a mark of their great love for one another. Do you have someone like that in your life? Do you have someone that you would identify as a Christian best friend? That's something that we all need. No man is an island. Again, marriage is an incredible, unspeakably wonderful blessing. But we weren't designed to have all of our needs, fellowship needs, met in that. I I would encourage you, this is an encouragement to me, to invest and be intentional and make time for growing and cultivating Christian friendships. This friendship was a blessing to David throughout the rest of David's life. Now, verses 3 through 7, we learn very important details about Saul's death. Every detail, as we will come to find out, is very important. There are no wasted words here. Verses 3 through 7. So the battle, this is being fought in the valley of Jezreel. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers. These are Philistine archers. And the archers found Saul. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised, these uncircumcised Philistines come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But notice this, remember this. But his armor bearer, what's his response? It says he would not, why? Because he feared greatly, meaning he feared God more than he feared Saul. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So a question for you, why would Saul ask his armor bearer to perform the equivalent of a mercy killing? Why would Saul ask his armor bearer to finish him off? What was he concerned about? Well, he's obviously in context worried about being captured by the Philistines. Remember at this time there was no Geneva Convention. Ancient Near Eastern kings were notorious for how they dealt with the king of the forces that they conquered. Things would not go well with Saul if he was captured alive by the Philistines. I'll give you an example from 1 Samuel of what was common in war in the ancient Near East. So 1 Samuel 11, the context is this Ammonite king has invaded a city in Israel. Let's hear how it goes. 1 Samuel 11. King Nahash of Ammon, so he's like a Canaanite king. King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. But the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead, they pleaded for peace. So they did not oppose Nahash. They didn't want any part of Nahash. As Nahash and his forces advanced on the city, they said, we give up. They, they, They put up the white flag of surrender. Nahash responded, all right then, but only on one condition. You won't believe this. So Nahash only gave one condition for peace. The condition of peace is that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. That's Nahash's idea of peace. 
That's the kind of torture he would inflict on the general citizens of Jabesh Gilead. How much more would they do to the opposing king when they got their hands on him? So Saul asked his armor bearer to finish him off so that the Philistines, in Saul's words, would not mistreat me. Okay, notice the response, again, of the armor bearer. He refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He feared God more than Saul, because remember back a few weeks ago, why would David not lift his own hand against the Lord's anointed? Because according to the law of Israel, Israelites were never to lift their hand against the king, never to curse God's anointed in Israel. David knew that, the armor bearer knew that, was not going to have anything to do with that. Okay, please remember this. It's very important. Okay, now let's look at the second half of verse 4 through verse 7. Therefore, because the armor bearer wouldn't do it, therefore Saul, he took out his own sword and fell upon it. That sounds pretty gruesome, but Saul kills himself. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Now, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this because this is going to come back up. Okay, at what point did the armor bearer take his own life? What did he see was the case? Let's look back at the text. When his armor bearer saw, he confirmed that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. That's the kind of commitment. That's the kind of connection that the armor bearer had to the king of Israel. The king of Israel was his responsibility. He was like his bodyguard in a sense. And when Saul went down, he went down. Look at verse 6. I want you to notice the repetition and the emphasis. Did I tell you this is going to come back up later? Okay. So it's not going to be my fault if you don't make a connection later. Okay. Thus Saul died. In other words, what's the narrator saying? This is how Saul died. I'm asking you now, how did Saul die? Saul killed himself, his armor bearer confirms it, and then his armor bearer takes his own life. Verse 4, this is how Saul died. And his sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley... And those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, more repetition, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And so just as Samuel prophesied in 1 Samuel 28, the Philistines defeat Israel, kill Saul and his sons. The narrator is going out of his way to reiterate Saul was dead before the armor bearer killed himself. Okay? The fact that Saul took his own life is also a commentary on what? As it relates to Saul. That Saul lacked trust in the living God. How many times was David saved just in the nick of time? Like a few weeks ago, we saw that David was as good as dead. Saul had him surrounded. It was over for David. And at the very last second, what happened? 
Saul's generals come to him and give him a report that the Philistines had invaded and Saul had to call off the chase and David was saved. Saul did not trust that here. The very last thing Saul does is take matters into his own hand and take his own life. What a tragic ending for Saul. Okay. Are you ready for panel five yet? All right, turn to panel five. So many of you love panel five. Some friends my, my age nicknamed me panel five, okay? So, Randy, I'm sorry. Um, so 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 17. But to do this, you see the Bible come alive. You see how the parts relate to the whole. I promise you by the end of this, it's, it's going to be stunning what the narrator is trying to do, what he's trying to teach us. Okay, 2 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 17. I will say also, first and 2 Samuel, in the very beginning, as they were written by the author, it was just one book. There was no 2 Samuel. It was just the book of Samuel. For a variety of reasons, it was divided up into 1 and 2 Samuel. But originally, this is one book, and so the story just flows along. So 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 17. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Okay, so just take a sip of your coffee just very briefly. Do you remember last week in 1 Samuel 28, when Saul, through this, the witch of Endor, raised up the spirit of Samuel. Does anybody remember that I preached on that passage? Maybe not. If you were here, if you've read 1 Samuel 28, it's a very interesting, you know, sometimes people think it's an odd or unique passage. So Saul goes to this witch of Endor, conjures up the spirit of Samuel. It's really Samuel. Do you remember... The reason that Samuel gave to Saul as to why God had rejected him. This would be a bonus question. Because Saul, at the quasi-beginning of his reign, disobeyed God and did not totally defeat and annihilate which group of people? The Amalekites. Saul was rejected as king because he refused to deal with the Amalekites like God said. So while Saul is dying, what is David doing? Look at 2 Samuel 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down who? The Amalekites. What is the narrator reinforcing? David is the true king. David is even now finishing the job that Saul refused to do, okay? It says, David remained two days in Ziklag after doing this. So while Saul is dying, David is far away in Ziklag. David had nothing to do with Saul's death. So the narrator is making it clear two things. David is doing what Saul refused to do, and David had absolutely nothing to do with Saul's death. Okay, remember that Amalekite. Verse 2, 
So while David's in Ziklag, he's just finished dispatching the Amalekites. He's back in Ziklag, a city far south of Mount Gilboa. On the third day, behold, a man, a man comes from Saul's camp. Saul's camp is way up in Mount Gilboa. Ziklag is far to the south. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Okay, he's come from the front lines of battle. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. So this guy has come from Mount Gilboa. He's portraying himself as barely escaping, and he's here to bring David news, news David is desperate for. Okay, verse 4. They didn't have telephones or radios or cell phones or walkie-talkies. David had no idea how the battle had turned out. Verse 3, David said to him, where do you come from? He said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. David's desperate for news. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said... By chance, remember what I told you, there's not a wasted word, remember? So this person is saying, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen, they were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called out to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Remember that. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him, and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. In other words, I didn't kill him, I just put him out of his misery. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Okay, friends. I don't know about you, but I think I smell a rat. Do you smell a rat? I think David smells a rat. Remember, okay, 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. Do you remember back to 1 Samuel 31? We just read this. What the narrator emphasized, emphasized, repeated, and clarified. Unambiguously, what did the narrator tell the reader about Saul's manner of death. Do you remember? Saul killed himself. The armor bearer confirmed it, then the armor bearer killed himself. Now we have a totally different story in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Okay, now to some people, this is a contradiction. 1 Samuel 31 says Saul did. 2 Samuel 1, the Amalekite says he did it. Who's correct? Is there a contradiction? Well, the answer, the solution, is actually very easy and straightforward, and we'll see that in just a moment. But let's continue in the story. Verses 11 through 14. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men 
who were with him. They were overwhelmed with grief at the death of Saul and Jonathan and the defeat of the Israelites. Verse 12, and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. This was one of the greatest defeats in Israel's history. Okay, and then David shifts his focus. Verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, okay, why does David ask him for more details? Why does David continue the questioning? David said to the young man who told him, David says to him, David asked this guy, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. That's the second time this person has been identified as an Amalekite. David said to him, verse 14, well then how is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Okay, the guy said, I am the son of a sojourner. A sojourner was a permanent resident of Israel. A sojourner was to uphold all the laws of Israel. The fact that the Amalekite was the son of a sojourner reinforces that he should have known better. How in the world did he think this was going to go okay for him to put Saul to death? Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Under no circumstances, under no circumstances, was a person to lift their hand against God's anointed. Do you know why? Have you gotten the sense of why that's the case? Chris introduced to us kind of a history of that word. So when you read in the Hebrew, and it says, like, Lord in all caps, the Lord's anointed, okay, those two words are really one word in the Hebrew, Meshua. How do we pronounce that in English? Messiah. All the kings of Israel had that title. They were called Meshua's or Messiah's. They were the anointed kings of God, and they were owed the ultimate in respect, okay? As Chris indicated, in Greek, do you remember our little quiz for y'all? So the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint, okay? So when the Septuagint translates this word, the Lord's anointed, when the Old Testament translates the Hebrew word Meshua, do you remember what word it would use for Meshua? See if we remember this. Maybe we hadn't had enough coffee. See if we can do the math. What's the Greek word for Meshua or Messiah? Christ, Christos, Christ. Okay? The Old Testament anticipated that all of these Messiahs, lowercase m, they were all anticipating the arrival of the capital M, the capital Messiah. 
All of these, we, we call all of these Old Testament kings types. They're foreshadowings. All these, so if you were to apply the Greek word to these people, what would they all be with a lowercase letter? They would be little Christs, all anticipating the day that, as Chris said, the Christ would come. No one, no one, no one was to lift their hand against the Lord's Christ. Okay? Here's what's so amazing. Guess what? The Amalekite. What do you think happened? The Amalekite did not kill Saul. The Amalekite was lying. The Amalekite was lying, and we know this for three reasons. Okay, you ready? Isn't this fun to investigate these things? Look at 2 Samuel 1.6. The narrator is giving you tips over and over. The narrator says, the Amalekite says what? By what? I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. What does it say? By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Okay. Um, people don't take afternoon strolls in a war zone. Okay, right now, the Russian front of Ukraine, you know, you're not just kind of traipsing down the road walking your dog. People left the front as fast as they could. So here's this Amalekite. He's not even in the army. Oh, by chance, I happen to be there. Oh, I just stumbled upon Saul close to death. This guy was a looter. You could enrich yourself greatly by looting the dead bodies on the battlefield that's happened in every age, in every stage of life. People would go on the battlefield, they would steal the armor, the swords, the spears. They could sell them at significant cost and enrich themselves. This guy was a rotten looter. He was not there by chance. They were following, like stayed behind the battle. Then when the battle was over, they would go out there and do that. Also, what kind of person is this? An Amalekite. Amalekites were despised by Israel. So if the Philistines were enemy 1A, the Amalekites are enemy 1B. You know, I've never met an Amalekite that I could trust. Okay, that's, that's what's going on here. No coincidence that the man who brings this story to David was an Amalekite. Again, why was Saul's kingdom taken from him? because he did not deal with the Amalekites, okay? Number two, what's the chances of the anointed of God being left all by himself to die? Virtually zero. Who do we know was there with Saul when he died? His armor bearer was there. The Amalekite lies and represents it like no one's there. The armor bearer was there till the very end. And last but not least, no son of a, sojourner, of a sojourner would do this. He would know better. So what this Amalekite was doing, why did he do this, do you think, based on what you know now? He brought the crown. He brought the armlet to David, acting like he was doing, you know, a good deed. He was trying to enrich himself. What did he think David would do? Remember I said at the beginning how Putin made a grave miscalculation, or three of them? 
This Amalekite made a grave miscalculation. He thought he would be rewarded by David. He thought perhaps he would be given a job in the new Davidic administration. I think it's safe to say he grossly miscalculated David's response. What did David do? See, David knew. David knew by his questioning that this guy was lying. And yet, what did David do anyway? David had this Amalekite executed. Not for doing it, but for simply saying he did it. What does that tell you about David's view of God's anointed? How exalted a view did David have of this office? Extremely high. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. His response to this. Look at his response to the death of the man who had mercilessly hunted him. Verse 11 and 12, Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all of the men who were with him, and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of Yahweh and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David was so distraught over the man who had tried to kill him and his son that he even wrote a psalm in Saul's honor. He creates a psalm. He writes a psalm. He said, teach it in Judah. Look at verses 17 and 19 at the end here. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. David refers to Saul as the glory of Israel. Here's my question to you. If David gave this kind of respect and honor to Saul in spite of Saul's rebellion and disobedience, how much more respect should we give to God's true anointed, to the Christ of the living God. That's a pretty amazing comparison from a lesser to a greater. If David reveres the office like this, what does that say for us? How then does the Bible view Jesus Christ? We don't have the words. If David had the Amalekite executed, not for killing Saul, but for claiming to do it, how should we view God's true Messiah? Okay, we're going to land the plane with this. So would you agree with me that the Bible has an extremely high view of the Christ, of that office? Can we agree? Jesus Christ the Son of God, David's respect, David's protection of this office? Can you imagine, then, how people treated the Christ on the day of his death? Just listen to this. It's inconceivable when you realize what the Christ means. Matthew 27, when they crucified Jesus... They divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. 
This is Jesus, the King, the Christ of the Jews. Those passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, Save yourself, come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the leaders in Israel, the teachers of the law, the elders, they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's even the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. David killed an Amalekite for just claiming to kill Saul. Why would God, Yahweh, allow his son to face this kind of ridicule and disrespect? God rejected Saul ultimately because of his sin. Okay? God rejected Saul. Why? Because of his sin. God the Father rejected Jesus. Why? Because of our sin. It was our sin that hung the Christ of God on that cross. Can you imagine? It was our sin your sin and mine that hung Jesus on the cross. Friends, that shows you how evil and how dark and how consequential our sin is. That's what our sin did to the Lord's anointed. And beloved, if we learn nothing else, Whatever view we have of Jesus, it's too low. However exalted Jesus is in your mind, it's not enough. It's not enough. We should never, we should never interpret the words Jesus Christ the same again. Jesus is the Christ of God. If David gave that kind of honor to Saul, how much more should we give to Jesus. He is God's anointed. He is the Christ. The Christ willingly subjected himself to death, death on a cross for you and me. That is amazing. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we just don't have the time to mine all the riches of this passage, Father. Lord, this morning we confess that our view, our understanding of your anointed, of the Christ of God is far too low. If David gave that kind of honor to Saul, how much more, Heavenly Father, how much more honor and respect and glory and worship should we give to the Lord Jesus, the Christ of God? Help us to appreciate him and worship him and revere him and love him and serve him all the days of our life. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.